Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvot Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvotisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Psalm 27, uh, which is what I read at the beginning of the service. During the month of Elul, uh, traditionally Psalm 27 is read every day in preparation for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In my last sermon, I mentioned how David, King David, sought the beauty of Adonai and how this can be seen as the heart of a prayer relationship with God. And this is found in verse 4. Just one thing I have asked of Adonai, only this I will seek, to live in the house of Adonai all the days of my life, to see the beauty of Adonai and visit in his temple. 
Last week I spoke about how the beauty of God is not quite like the beauty as we normally think of it, right? But the beauty of his character. The heart of a relationship with God is communication and prayer. And the heart of a prayer relationship is declaring the beauty of God. His covenantal love, his slowness to anger, his faithfulness, his mercy, his kindness, his incredible power and strength, his favor, his identity as creator, sustainer, and rescuer. Psalm 27 goes on, and just as we sang, to describe something very unique, and this is in verses 7 through 9. Listen, Adonai, to my voice when I cry. Show favor to me and answer me. My heart said of you, seek my face. Your face, Adonai, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. You are my help. Don't abandon me. Don't leave me, God, my Savior. So what does it mean to to seek the face of God? Sort of an interesting interesting, question. wording, word choice there. The ironic blessing, which we do at the end of every service, it mentions the face or the countenance of God twice, all right? And this comes from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, and it's an instruction for the Kohanim or the priests in order to bless Israel. And this is what we say, Yivarechacha Adonai veyishmarecha, Ya'er Adonai panavelecha vechunecha, Yisa Adonai panavelecha veyasemlecha shalom. And do we see the word panav is written up there twice? Do we see that word? Can we identify that, some of us? Yes, nod if you see it. All right, panav. And it, and it means, may Adonai bless you and keep you. May Adonai make his face shine upon you and be show you his favor or be gracious to you. And then it says, may Adonai lift up his face toward you and bring you peace. So it's his face is mentioned twice. So here we can understand God's face to be his presence, his blessing, his favor, his loving character. The Hebrew word panav is translated his face. It's from the word panim. Uh, where we get, you know, of course, there's the Yiddish word punam, right? Oh, such a shena punam. That's what, uh, what Sandy likes to say. There are actually times when people do not seek the face of God as David is doing. Or they rather, they avoid his presence. So we can think of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, reads like this. The word of Adonai came to Jonah, or Jonah, son of Amittai. Set out for this great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it that their wickedness has come to my attention. But Yonah, in order to get away from Adonai, prepared to escape to Tarshish. And the, the first part of verse 3, I have it in Hebrew there. It says, Vayakam Yonah livroach Tarshish milfane Adonai. Everyone say milfane. All right? And look at the end of milfane. What do you see there? There's a fe, which is the same as pe, and then the nun, right? And that means that's the face, the same word, right? So that word has the word for face. So some translations say that Jonah, when he fled 
from the presence of God. It was as if he fled from the face of God. Do we see that? In other words, God's face can be seen as his presence and also perhaps his will or his calling on our lives, his guidance and his direction that Jonah was uh, trying to get away from. So originally Jonah rejected, uh, but eventually and probably reluctantly yielded to the face of God, that is, his will, his calling, and his presence. Do we see that? So when David says, my heart said to you, your face I will seek, we can understand that to mean that even with the surrounding chaos, right? In the Psalm, Psalm 27, it says that armies were rising up against him, and especially with the surrounding chaos, perhaps. Um, David, King David endeavored to seek, seek the favor and the will and the presence and direction from God. He sought his face, though all of that was going around. And is there chaos, right, surrounding us just as in the days of David? Of course, right? We're seeing in the news, we see, we see hurricanes, we see floods, we see demonstrations of hate. And what is David's response to this? He seeks the face of God because his face is his goodness and his presence. And in his presence, there is a rescuing covenantal love and there is shalom. There is peace. I was reading a book recently which made an interesting analogy. So I'd like to share it with you. And uh, this is a quote. Let's take a survey. Would you like to take a survey? All right. This one is for engaged or married women, right? But I think you will all enjoy it. So ladies, try to remember back to how your husband proposed to you. And in this culture, I am assuming it is the man who does the proposing. This is a quote from the book. I did not write this. Okay? There are several different modes of communication available to the male that he could utilize in asking a female to be his wife. As you look over these options, please recall the particular method he chose to employ in your situation. Are you ready? Ladies? Okay. Fax machine, right? Maybe you were married in the 80s and your man wanted to impress you with his latest technology and he faxed you a proposal, perhaps doused with cologne or something like that. Or maybe it had a cover sheet. The cover sheet had uh, hearts all over it. Is that? No? Okay. All right, maybe your husband was an English major and wanted to woo you with some passionate prose, and he mailed you a letter of proposal. Virginia, is that, is that how it went down? Yes, okay, well, well you just ruined my analogy. Ugh. Maybe you got engaged in the 90s, and your partner thought he would wow you with his new laptop and send you an email proposal adding some yellow, bouncing, smiley faces. Right? To seal the deal. Linus, that's how you did it? You guys are not helping me. <laughs> All right. Maybe your spouse was very busy and you couldn't find the time to meet personally, so he called to sweet talk you into marrying him, whispering tender words of, of affection over the phone. Or better yet, maybe he wanted to try out the new marriage app proposal, right? On his smartphone. Yeah. There's a lot of bugs in it, though. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't try it. Doesn't have a doesn't have a great reviews. Maybe your beloved just max, mastered the art of texting and punched out "want you to be my wife." Will you marry me? 
something like that, right? He thought it'd be cool. Oh, maybe he wrote on your profile wall, right? A romantic proposal so that all your friends would see it and go, oh, that is so sweet. Yes, that's, (laughs) now I know you're fibbing because Lloyd is not on social media. All right. Well, that's, that's, I'm going to unquote from this book. All right. And now I'm just going to talk to you. Of course not. Right. He probably did it face to face. In Hebrew, we say panim el panim. Try that. For anything important, an expression of love and a forever type commitment, it's got to be face to face. Amen. All right. And we see that. So if this is true with human relationships, then kal vachomer, how much more is it true with our relationship with our creator and our father in heaven? Let's take another look at verse 9 in Psalm 27. King David pleads with Hashem. He says, don't hide your face from me. I don't have it up there, Robert. Thank you. Don't hide your face from me. This is an interesting request. It was up there. I'm okay. We, well, we'll, we'll move on. You get it. Um, so what would it mean for God to, to hide his face? All right, this is not a case of us running away from God's face, like the story of Jonah. This, uh, this would be initiated by Hashem himself. Deuteronomy 31, 16 through 18 says this. It gives us a hint. Adonai said to Moshe, you are about to sleep with your ancestors, but this people will get up and offer themselves as prostitutes to the foreign gods of the land where they are going. When they are with those gods, they will abandon me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will flare up, and I will abandon them, and I will, what? Hide my face from them. They will be devoured, and many calamities and troubles will come upon them. Then they will ask, haven't these calamities come upon us because our God isn't here with us? But I will be hiding my face from them because of all the evil that they will have done in turning to other gods. Interesting. In other words, God can hide his face when we are in gross rebellion or idolatry or unrepentant sin or unrepented uh, oppression of the poor and vulnerable. The consequences, which are sometimes called curses in Deuteronomy, which we've been reading in the Parashot, they are a result of God hiding his face, that is, hiding his favor and blessing and loving protection. So when destruction comes as a result of Israel's disobedience, this is how it is framed. God does not directly bring his wrath, but rather he removes his blessing. He hides his face in the case of gross, unrepentant sin and rebellion. This, however, is never the end goal of the Lord. Isaiah 54, 8 says this, I was angry for a moment and hid my face from you, but with everlasting grace, I will have, what? Compassion on you, says Adonai, your redeemer, or you could translate it, your rescuer. God may hide his face for a moment, but his grace and forgiveness are so much greater, so much greater than his anger. He is slow to anger and abounding in love for us, his wayward children. In other words, God is in the rescuing love business, and he is in the rescuing love business despite our many faults 
and our many mistakes and our many sins. We should always seek his face in righteous deeds, knowing at the same time that he's very slow to hide his face. But he desires, he longs to shine his favor and his presence on us, his children. So we have seen that God hiding his face is an expression in the scriptures for the, for the consequences of sin, also called curses in Deuteronomy. So let's explore this concept a bit and try to get a biblical viewpoint on these curses or consequences. Deuteronomy and other scriptures point to a consequence as a direct result of disobedience, right? But does this make God uh, like a taskmaster, meaning that uh, he's just punishing sin and rewarding good behavior, and that's basically all he does? I don't think, I don't think that's it. That's not quite the biblical perspective that we get. We can think of God's face like the sun, right? And we can think of us as a plant. If you put a plant in the sunlight, what's going to happen? It's going to grow, right? If you leave a, bla- a basil plant in the trunk of your car for a few weeks, which I might have done once, <clears throat> uh, it's, it's going to wither and die because you've removed it from the presence, the face of the sun. It's an inevitable consequence, right? It has to happen. So I could whine, right? I'd say, oh, the sun is punishing me because I put the plants in the trunk of my car and causing them to die, right? I could think about it that way. Or I could say, well, I removed the plants from the source of life. Perhaps I forgot about them. I had a lot going on that week, I guess. Um, And I let them remain without light and water for a few weeks. And that caused them to die before I ever got to plant them. Not that I would ever do that to a plant. This is, of course, hypothetical. But you get the analogy. Before Adam and Chava ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil to try to become like God, the scripture says this in Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17. Adonai, God, gave the person, that is Adam, this order. You may freely eat from every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are not to eat from it, because on the day that you eat from it, it will become certain that you will die. Well, they did eat from it. And did they die? Did they die when they ate it? Yes and no, right? No, they didn't die right away. But yes, sin and death entered the world, and they were removed from the garden where the tree of life was, right? So that would be the sun in this analogy that I gave earlier. No longer can they eat from the tree of life every day and live in the presence of God. The consequence of their sin and rebellion was that they were not able to eat from the tree. And that that tree of life, it prefigures the Messiah. Do we see that? Because the Messiah is the tree of life. And so they were cast out from the presence or the face of God. And eventually, they did die as a result of that, of their choice. But of course, that's not the end of the story, right? Because God has been rescuing us and drawing us back to him ever since we made that choice. Because remember, he may hide his face for a moment, but he is gracious to show his face and rescue us with his love. Amen? The fullness of this rescuing plan becomes evident a few pages later in the story. 
the inevitable consequence of sin and rebellion is death because we're removed from the face of God. But there was a man who took on this consequence for us, took on the curse for us, though he never himself fell for that same problem as Adam and Chava. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14. For everyone who depends on legalistic observance of Torah commands lives under a curse, since it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not keep on doing everything written in the scroll of the Torah. In other words, there's a consequence for our disobedience. Now it is evident that no one comes to be declared righteous by God through legalism. since the person who is righteous will obtain life by trusting and being faithful. Moreover, furthermore, legalism is not based on trusting and being faithful, but on a misuse of the text that says, anyone who does these things will attain life through them. Here's the kicker. The Messiah redeemed us from the curse pronounced in the Torah by becoming cursed on our behalf. Let me read that again. The Messiah redeemed us from the curse pronounced in the Torah by becoming cursed on our behalf. For the Tanakh says, everyone who hangs from a stake comes under a curse. Yeshua the Messiah did this so that in union with him, the Gentiles might receive the blessing announced to Avraham, so that through trusting and being faithful, we might receive what was promised, namely the Spirit. Yeshua became cursed. That is, he took on the inevitable consequence of our disobedience, though he did nothing wrong, so that we could have forgiveness, so that we could have reconciliation back to God, and so that we could have even eternal life. That is, to eat from the tree of life once more. Moreover, because Yeshua was no ordinary man, there is one other way that God shines his face on us through Yeshua. John 14, verses 5 through 10, says this. Thomas, or Thomas, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Yeshua said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because you have known me, you will also know my Father From now on, you do know him. In fact, you have seen him. You've seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. Yeshua replied to him, Have I been with you so long without your knowing me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am united with the Father, and the Father united with me? Thomas He had a good request, right? He wanted to see God's face, just like Moses. Didn't Moses ask the same thing? Lord, I want to see your face. And just like David did in the Psalm 27 that we sang about and that we read about. But Yeshua let him know that the fullness of the Father's face is reflected in his face. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this of Yeshua. This son, meaning Yeshua, is the radiance of the Shekhinah, that is the presence or the face of God, the very expression of God's essence, upholding all that exists by his powerful word. And after he had, through himself, 
made purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of Hagadullah Baromim, which is the majesty, the greatness. In other words, Yeshua's face fully expresses the radiance of the Father's face. His goodness, his love, his presence, his character, and his grace and mercy. Genesis 1 verse 27 says that God made humankind in his image. That is, our faces, our faces are supposed to reflect his face, just like the face of Yeshua does. Of course, there's only one human who ever accomplished that fully. But by putting our trust in Yeshua, we are participating in this rescue plan that God has for us. And we are fulfilling our calling to reflect his goodness, reflect his face. If you look at a picture of my father when he was my age, you can see how my face, my face is reflected in his. Why is that? Because I come from him, right? I'm his son. And also, my face reflects my mother's image as well. So that when my father looks at me, he can see his bride. Rabbi David Rudolph said in a sermon once that when he looks at his three daughters, he can see his bride's image in them. And that fills him, fills him with a father's love. Beloved, through Yeshua, God has shined his face on us. Not to keep the favor, the favor and love of God to ourselves, but to reflect, to reflect that goodness. Remember that when Moses spent 40 days on the mountain with God, remember he came down and his face was shining from the brightness of that time. That time he had panim el panim, face to face with God. And one greater, greater than Moses is here, Yeshua the Messiah. So lest you think that this is something that only happens in Bible times, Rabbi Ron Aronson, who, uh, who Robert was talking about, he shared with us uh, once that there was a man who flew into Houston regularly on Shabbat um, to, to Rabbi Ron's congregation. And, and his explanation was, I want to follow the light that I see reflected in your face, Rabbi Ron. So God did it with Moses. He can do it with us. He doesn't, he doesn't change. The face of God did shine on Rabbi Ron during the, the flooding and the, and the chaos in southern Texas recently. This is what he posted on Facebook. He said, Dearest ones, this is the morning. He gave references, Psalm 91, Psalm 27, which we read, and Psalm 67, verses 1 through 5. Your prayers through the day and many through the night are being answered. From Dolly, Terry, and I. Dolly is his wife, um, and Terry is his daughter. My home is dry inside. His, his home was dry. Thank you. We have a north wind blowing 20 miles per hour with gusts over 40 miles per hour. I'm on the southwest edge of the storm. Forecast is more rain starting this evening. I hope and pray that will change. There will never be words to thank all of you around the world for your prayers. Please don't quit now. Blessings, Ron Aronson. In another post, he said this. 
my beloved friends, family, and Facebook family, good news, we are all safe. Bad news is my daughter Terry lost her home to a fire a few hours ago, as Robert mentioned. Thank the Lord she was not there. There was an explosion of a window unit, and the home caught fire. Terry helps take care of my wife. Rabbi Ron's wife has, um, I believe, muscular multiple sclerosis or something like that. And so she, um, they needed actually a generator, um, so they needed power, and which God provided for them, and he protected him and his wife, and they protected their home during, during the flood, during the storm. Um, such, and it's such a blessing to her mom and I, so speaking of Terry, his daughter. Terry just signed on to help the storm recover team. So this is a woman who just lost her house, and now she's signed, she's signed up to, to help. I mean, the Lord, he said, the Lord is so good to us, pray for Terry, right? And after this post, you see picture after picture of, of Rabbi Ron and his family partnering with God's people to bring restoration and healing into the Houston area. His ministry is uh, Israel Benevolence Fund. I think it's uh, israelbenevolencefund.org if you'd like to look it up and if God puts it on your heart to, to partner with him. I want to encourage all of us, like Rabbi Ron, to seek the face of God, even in the midst of surrounding chaos, and to reflect his goodness, reflect his love, Reflect, reflect his presence to a hurting world that, that needs, needs his rescuing love. So this month of Elul, let's seek his presence, his goodness, and his mercy. Let's seek his face. Amen? All right.